Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Beyond the Abstract. I'm Dan, here with Derek. Hey there, Derek. How's it going? I heard you went to a concert of a little-known indie artist. Isn't that right? You may have heard of her, just like a little country artist. Her name's Taylor Swift. Do you know her? Well, I heard that there were thousands of people outside the stadium who didn't have tickets who were still there. So I'm impressed you managed to get in. Yeah, it was definitely Philadelphia's hottest event. It was incredible, honestly. Like, she's just such a good performer. There was, like, a 12-year-old girl next to me, and I was just thinking, like, you weren't even alive when Fearless came out. (laughs) And it made me feel really old. You are really old. Well, it sounds like a real love story, the whole (laughs) concert experience. Good one! (laughs) And on that note, we have a perhaps just as good paper to talk about today. Uh, This is a really cool one. It's called Immobility Associated Thromboprotection is Conserved Across Mammalian Species from Bear to Human. It was published earlier this year in the journal Science from a group of researchers based out of the University of Munich in Germany. And to get started, the title includes the word thromboprotection, which relates to clotting. So before we get into too many of the details, we know that when we cut ourselves on a piece of paper, if all goes well, the bleeding stops, our blood clots, and eventually the skin heals. Derek, can you remind us how exactly that process happens? The blood we think of can actually be thought of as two parts. One part is the actual cells. These include red blood cells, which are responsible for transporting oxygen, and white blood cells, which do things like fight outside pathogens and prevent infections. As a digression, think about this. There are about 25 trillion, not billion, trillion red blood cells in our body, which is just like an insane number. And they are continuously being produced. It never stops. And it happens at a rate of about a million cells per second. So just like really an insane, insane number of cells. The second part is basically liquid with molecules floating around in it. And we call this plasma. Within plasma, there are all sorts of molecules. But some of the most important ones are those that help make blood clot. And there are important clotting molecules floating around in that part. When we get a cut, a small cell called platelets in our blood make the initial blockage of the injury. Then the clotting molecules we just talked about come in and activate this entire signaling cascade um, that seals up that injury. What's really amazing is that the body has evolved in a way to only clot when you need to. The effect of clotting when you don't want to can actually be quite catastrophic. Imagine if your blood decided to clot all of a sudden, it would clog up that blood vessel and you could potentially die. So, you know, it's it's scary and also just kind of crazy to think like this whole system is flowing through our vessels all the time. I think it's incredible that there are a million of anything being produced per second in our body. So again, a million red blood cells per second. 
And then that our blood always has the potential to form a clot to prevent us from bleeding, but somehow, most of the time, our blood is not clotting when it shouldn't, because that would be, as you said, really catastrophic. So it's amazing that it can keep that homeostatic balance. This system can definitely go wrong, though. Can you remind us of the common ways that clotting can malfunction and how that presents as different diseases? Issues with clotting are actually the leading cause of death worldwide, and it's associated with about one in four deaths. Many of the most common causes of death share a clotting issue at their core. These include blood clots that form in the vessels of our heart, leading to a heart attack, blood clots in the vessels in our brains, leading to a stroke, or clots that can form our legs and travel to our lungs, which is called a pulmonary embolism leading to blockage in your lungs and preventing oxygen from being delivered to your body. In other words, every organ in the body needs blood, and if there is a clotting issue, that can prevent blood from getting there, and that organ can get damaged. And that's only the clotting side. Issues with excessive bleeding are also a major issue as well. That's such a great reminder that issues with clotting are at the core of so many of the most common causes of disease and death, again, including heart attack and stroke, all at their core sharing inappropriate clotting of blood. So do we know why these problematic blood clots tend to form? Are there any important well-known risk factors? In medical school, we learn pretty early on about this paradigm that we call Virchow's triad. It's named after this British physician named Rudolf Virchow from the mid-19th century, who noticed that blood tended to clot under certain conditions, three conditions to be exact. The first is when blood isn't flowing, which we call stasis. The second is when there is something in the blood that makes it more likely to clot. So this could be, you know, some sort of increase in clotting factors that we call hypercoagulability. And the third thing is when there is damage to the walls of the blood vessels, which we call endothelial injury. So they're still teaching this triad, and it's been hundreds of years by now. So there's definitely something to it. For example, we think of a super long airline flight as a risk factor for blood clots in the leg, and that's probably because your blood is pooling there and isn't flowing well and more likely to clot. So that plays into one of the components of Virchow's triad. Absolutely. On our clinical rotations in the hospital, we often see patients on a low dose of a medicine called heparin which prevents blood clots because we think that when patients are in the hospital laying in their beds all day, that's a risk factor for clots because blood in their legs in particular isn't moving as it might normally. I see in the title of the paper that we're talking about today mention of immobility. What's the relationship between not moving and the questions that they were asking in this paper? The research team here was focused on this idea that not moving increases the risk of clotting, but they had a particularly clever insight and thought. And honestly, it's crazy to me how they even thought of this. While it's true that not moving generally increases clot risk, in some cases, prolonged immobility doesn't lead to an increased risk. 
They cite two examples that support this idea. First, people who have spinal cord injuries and are permanently immobilized do not have an elevated risk of blood clots, even though you think they would. Second, hibernating bears, of course, aren't moving when they're hibernating because they're like sleeping, which you might suspect would also increase the risk of blood clots. But actually, nobody has ever seen increased rates of clots during hibernation. So just to be clear, they identified a paradox that while short-term immobilization is associated with higher rates of clot, like when we're on an airplane for 12 hours, long-term immobilization, like when people are permanently paralyzed or bears when they are hibernating for months, are not actually at any increased risk of clot. So interesting. So how did they try to understand why this paradox was occurring. What protects these bears from getting blood clots during hibernation? They literally took blood from bears. Like, honestly, reading this entire method section was just like one big, like, mind-blown moment. Apparently, there's an initiative called the Scandinavian Brown Bear Research Project, where over some number of years, Bears have been fitted with GPS trackers, so the researchers know where they are. These researchers are, like, probably the gutsiest people, like, I've ever heard of. In the winter, they went up to hibernating bears in their dens and injected them with a temporary anesthesia so they could collect a little bit of blood. Like, I can't even imagine sneaking up on a bear and doing that and injecting them with something. That's just like the craziest thing ever. Sounds like my worst nightmare. That's so wild. I know. In the summer, things got even crazier when the researchers got in helicopters and then shot tranquilizing darts to put the bears to sleep for a little while so they could go up and take more blood. It's just insane. You have to love the creativity and bravery. Some might say insanity of this research team to go up tranquilizing big bears and taking some of their blood. Maybe five years ago, I watched the movie Revenant, which some people might have watched. And it's maybe most famous for Leonardo DiCaprio getting attacked by bears. So I hope they didn't watch that scene because I think that would make them pretty nervous. But anyway, I really can't believe they did this, but it's so great they did for science. For science. So once they had the blood samples from the bears hibernating and the active bears, how did they go about searching for differences in bear blood that might explain why the winter bears were protected from clotting? Great question. So the first thing they wanted to check was to see whether there was a difference in the clotting tendency between the hibernating and active bear blood. They confirmed what they expected to see, that the blood taken from hibernating bears took longer to clot. Remember, we talked about how a clot is the result of platelet aggregation and then setting off a coagulation cascade to help the clot form. When they inhibited platelet function, there was actually no difference in clotting time between summer and winter blood, suggesting that differences in platelet function between the hibernating and active blood was key. 
They then looked to try and understand what was different about platelets specifically from the hibernating and active bear blood. They did this by comparing the levels of proteins, and specifically, they focused in on the protein with the largest difference. A protein called heat shock protein 47, or HSP 47 for short, and it's found in much higher levels in active bear blood than in hibernating bear blood. Got it. So they identified differences in platelet function, and they narrowed in on a protein called HSP 47 as a potential driver of these differences. So is this protein well known? Do we know how it works? HSP 47 is actually not particularly well studied, especially in the context of platelets. So the researchers did my favorite approach, develop a mouse model, where the gene is deleted and just see what happens. What's really reassuring is that they found that mice where HSP 47 is removed from platelets actually weren't able to form clots as well. Of course, this result was in mice. What about in humans? Before we talked about how people who are chronically immobilized, like from spinal cord injury, are also protected from clots. Could they look at any association between this protein they saw in bears and mice and whether it's actually relevant for humans? They can. So they recruited 23 people with spinal cord injuries and compared the levels of HSP 47 in their platelets to 23 people without spinal cord injuries. And just as in bears, the levels of HSP 47 in individuals with spinal cord injuries were reduced by about half. You might say the HSP 47 change in humans was from something about the injury rather than immobilization. And the researchers did another clever analysis to get around this. They partnered with researchers at the European Space Agency who were trying to understand how space flight weightlessness affects health and simulating this by 30 days of bed rest for some healthy people in the study. I just love how this study is so creative in bringing in different types of data. Sounds pretty terrible to me having to lie in bed for 30 days, but some people did this. Anyway, after 30 days, HSP 47 expression was also decreased, showing that the bed rest precedes the decrease in HSP 47 levels. Got it. Were there any other analyses that they did, or was that it? So they did do one more, just for good measure, and this time they looked at pigs. So after giving birth, mother pigs don't move as much as they usually do because they're nursing the baby pigs. And lo and behold, just as in bears and in humans, HSP 47 is also decreased in mother pigs right after birth. That's so cool. It feels like they had a bingo card of species <laughs> and analyses for this paper and they just had to get another one so they said why don't we look at pigs you might as well just test the entire zoo at that point <laughs> on to the giraffes now so just to recap the study started with the researchers identifying this paradox where in bears and in humans who don't move for a long time there seems to be protection from clotting even though we know that short-term immobilization is associated with clotting. So they first tranquilized some bears and compared the blood from the hibernating bears and the active bears, 
and found that this protein HSP47 was at very low levels in hibernating bears compared to the summer bears. They then showed that mice without this molecule were less likely to have blood clots, and then moved to multiple human analyses, first in the individuals with spinal cord injury, and second in the space agency data, showing that long-term immobilization in humans is also associated with lower levels of HSP-47. We talked about at the beginning how disorders of clotting are the most common cause of death overall, including heart attacks and strokes and clots in the lungs. I think this work opens up a new avenue of research and potentially even pharmaceutical development around molecules that can block HSP-47 and potentially reduce the risk of platelets from blocking up blood vessels. I also think this is a great example of how noticing surprising paradoxical features of the natural world can lead to unexpected important discoveries. We're so consistently taught in medical school that immobilization is a risk factor for clotting, but yet there are these well-established examples of long-term immobilization not leading to clotting, like bare hibernation and people with spinal cord injury. Clearly here, pursuing these surprising, paradoxical observations in the natural world and going against the traditional teaching and ideas led to important discoveries here of HSP-47. I think this just goes to show that everything in biology is more than really meets the eye. I think we're taught things in a simplified manner a lot of the time because it's easy to understand and it's easy to build a framework from the simple model, but the truth is things just aren't that simple. It just means there's a lot more work to be done to understand the intricacies of things like blood clotting. I agree. I think this is such a great example of basic science turning into a potential medicine, that uh, bench-to-bedside dream that we're always going for. Right, Derek? All you need is a little bit of courage and to dart some bears, and you too can be a successful MD-PhD. All you need is a thought and a ton of ketamine. <laughs> Let's not end this episode without giving a huge shout out to the courage of these Scandinavian researchers who are getting all up close and personal with these bears. I honestly don't know that I would want to be a part of this study, you know, taking blood from the neck of a hibernating bear anytime soon. The whole thing still blows my mind. Well, on that note, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. 